Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. And actually, having a day on the book of Hebrews is probably nowhere near enough, uh, given that it is a complex, challenging, and quite long book, despite, I don't know if any of you have read it and got to the end, um, at the end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, the guy goes, um, uh, I've only written you a short letter. You're like, seriously, this is longer than most of the rest of the New Testament, and you think this is short, but there you go. Um, It is long enough that we won't get to cover everything today, but my aim for today is simply this, that we will be able to look at enough of Hebrews and enough of the core argument and the really challenging bits so that we understand the logic of what is going on, we understand the main arguments such that if you go away and read some of the bits that we haven't had time to look at today, hopefully you will be able to say, oh, I understand how that works because I know the the foundation of the main arguments. So uh, I I mean that honestly, I don't mean that we're going to skip the bits that I find difficult and go, oh yeah, but you'll be able to understand that and I've just glossed over that. We will do all the difficult bits today and leave the more straightforward bits um, for you. So I know actually some of you have told me that you've been listening to it or have been reading it on the way in, and some of you have said, well, I haven't read every bit. I, I may only got to chapter 10 or chapter 11. Uh, that's fine. That's only as far as we're going to get today, actually. We're going to get to the end of chapter 10, um, and then hopefully you'll be able to understand 11, 12, 13 yourself. Um, you got a question? It is not possible to plug me into the speakers, I'm afraid. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. I will try and speak slowly. Actually, that's not going to happen. I'll <laughs> Sorry. Um, I will try and speak more slowly than, uh, than I usually do, probably somewhere towards the pace of a normal human being. Um, it is quite echoey. I'll try and stand a bit closer to you as well so I don't have to speak as loud. Um, I should say, as we go through today, um, we've got a lot to cover in a short period of time. So some bits I'll just go really fast. Some bits will take a bit more slowly. You probably will find it helpful to have a Bible out in front of you because I'll just be referring to verses that we won't always get a chance to read. Um, So having it to refer to will be useful if you do have a Bible. And if you have questions as we go, do feel free to ask. There may be some points where I just say, let's hold that question because I know we're going to get to it or I know we don't have time right then. Um, But I'm very happy to take questions as we go because there's nothing worse than just sitting there and thinking, I really haven't understood anything you've said for the last hour, but I've not had an opportunity to ask. That's a bit of a waste of all our time, so do ask questions. Uh, But I wonder, before we get into the book, would someone uh, volunteer to pray for us? Someone, anyone, <laughs> a tentative hand. You, I, I guess what the reasoning is, you're thinking, if I pray now, then maybe he won't ask me to do anything else later on. <laughs> so that's, that's clever. Well done. You're right. Uh, why don't you lead us in prayer?
Amen. <laughs> I've never been prayed for to speak slowly before, but that's a very apt prayer. And uh, maybe when the Bible talks about being slow to speak, um, that's, that's what it means. It's some spiritual gift that I haven't had up to now. So um, maybe we'll, well, hopefully we'll have that. Um, people who just come in, do you have handouts? You get yeah, great, wonderful. Well, Hebrews chapter 1. Um, context is obviously really important to understanding any book of the Bible. Um, we're not going to have a lot of time to really get into the context now. Um, there are huge arguments about who wrote the book, who it was written to, when it was written, all those sorts of things. You'll find on the first couple of pages of your notes some background information on that. I won't go into it now because actually it's just there's so much we could say about it. If you do have specific questions uh, about who wrote it and how we know it was maybe this person, maybe not this person, very happy to talk about that during the breaks. But let me give you what is my kind of working hypothesis for understanding Hebrews. And this is pretty common, to be, to be clear. It's not something I've just plucked out of the air. I think many scholars would agree with what I'm about to say. So if you turn to the page that says, who were the recipients of the letter... Uh, firstly, we don't know who wrote the letter. Um, there's some information on page two, I think, about that. Um, it's almost certainly not Paul. We don't know who it was. Probably someone associated with Paul. He seems to know Timothy, seems to know the church quite well. But Oregon, the early church father, says about the authorship of the epistle to the Hebrews, God only knows. And I think that's probably about as far as we can say. That's not to say that no one has ever known. Some people, some oddballs, will say, oh, what Oregon is saying is that literally nobody but God has ever known who's written the letter. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's simply saying we don't have that information today. Obviously the people who got the letter knew who had written it to them because he seems to know them very well and we can tell that by the affection that he shows in the writing of the letter. We simply do not know who wrote it. But here is my working hypothesis. I think the letter was written between 60 to 64 AD to Jewish Christians who had returned to Rome after the expulsion from Rome. Um, in, uh, so in AD 49, Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, and they had returned back to Rome around AD 53-ish. And obviously that was a key period of persecution for Jews and for Jewish Christians. Uh, you can read about that a little bit in Acts chapter 18. Um, but actually, in that persecution, none of them lost their lives. They were simply, simply, <laughs> simply kicked out of the city, simply expelled from, um, from Rome. But none of them lost their lives. And that's important because actually in Hebrews it talks about um, the readers having not yet experienced martyrdom and it talks about that in chapter 12 verse 4 which tells us that when it's talking about persecution and struggles he, it, it's not got as far in history as the time of Nero where many of them did lose their lives it's somewhere between Claudius and Nero so when we're trying to figure out when the book was written the best guess is somewhere between about 60 to 64 AD so they had returned back after the expulsion they're trying to settle back into life in Rome um, and at this point in time in the Roman Empire Christianity was considered a cult it had no kind of protected status from the, the powers, whereas Judaism did. It was considered a religion that uh, had at least some protection from the state. And so it seems um, that the readers may have been tempted, because of the persecution that is increasingly coming their way, to uh, go back from their Christian beliefs and practices back to some form of Judaism which had protection. So rather than being seen as a cult and outsiders, they were tempted to go back to the Jewish religion with the sacrifices and the various laws and practices, uh, which, according to the author of Hebrews, would actually amount to abandoning Christ himself. 
And so whoever wrote the, the book, um, it seems that the purpose is to say to these people, do not go back, do not give up on Christ, because if you do, there's really not a lot of hope for you. And that seems to be the main thing that lies behind a lot of what is happening in the book of Hebrews. Like I said, we could go into more depth on that background, but I think that's enough for us right now. Um, do read those pages and do ask if you have particular questions. But when we get to the book of Hebrews itself, what we find is that it is a book full of encouragement. Um, a lot of people know about the book of Hebrews. If you ask people, what do you know about the book of Hebrews? A lot of people will say well, it's confusing and it's full of warning passages. Uh, maybe you think that. And it is. There are some very strong and very difficult warnings which we will skip today. Uh, no, I'm kidding. We, <laughs> we, we will get to in the second... Um, We'll get to in the second session. Uh, but actually, in terms of like carrot and stick, uh, there are far more carrots and very few sticks in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's easy to think it's a book full of warnings. Actually, it's so full of encouragement. And the warnings come within the context of this huge encouragement. And the encouragement that we get in the book of Hebrews is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And almost all of the book, arguably all of the book, um, is just talking about how incredible Jesus is. And we see that right from the very beginning. So what I want to do in this uh, first hour is just look at chapters 1 to 4, which is a lot to cover in a short period of time. But essentially the message, I'm giving the game away here, essentially the message of this whole first session is Jesus is better. He is better than everything and everyone. And we start to see that in chapter 1. So, could someone read to me? Um, you'll have some of the verses here in your notes, but you also may want to have a Bible open as well. Could someone read out Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiant exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. <laughs> now, what an opening to a letter. <laughs> like, I haven't, probably haven't written a letter for years, but when I wrote letters, like thank you letters, I would usually be like, Dear whoever, I hope you're well. You know, it's like, in the past. God, that's like, this is a pretty striking, quite a blunt and bold opening to the chapter. Like, he doesn't hold back at all. He's just like, bam, Jesus is incredible. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is the best, the ultimate communication. Um, he says a number of things about Jesus. I realise I've left page numbers off the pages which is quite unhelpful so I don't know what page we're on but we're the page that's talking about these verses so I hope you can find it um, he says a number of things about Jesus first of all he suggests that he is the heir of all things um, in these last days he's spoken to us by the son whom he appointed heir of all things and this seems to be an allusion to Psalm 2 which uh, is a key psalm talking about the coming Messiah who would be like a king and it says this Psalm 2 verse 8 he said to me you are my son today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Do you notice any difference though between Psalm 2 and what Hebrew says here? What's the inheritance in Psalm 2? The nations. What's the inheritance in Hebrews 1? All things. Yeah, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big shift, isn't it? 
actually, this gives us a clue into how Hebrews is going to interpret the whole of the Old Testament, really. And there is a certain things that the Old Testament promised, and Jesus just far surpasses all of them. As the Son, Jesus not only gets to inherit the nations, he gets to inherit all things. And actually, in chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about the, um, the world and the world to come. And I think that's probably part of what's going on here. The reason Jesus gets to inherit all things is he doesn't only get the nations in this world now, but also the world to come. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is the heir. The second thing, though, we see is that Jesus is the creator. And actually, Psalm 2 was written to a king about his kingly rule and it was okay to think that the king would get to inherit or rule the nations right but no one would be stupid enough to say that the king was also the creator of all things and yet that's exactly what is said here of Jesus in verse 2 through through whom God made the universe now in the old testament there was a tradition of um, wisdom being this being through whom everything was made and so if you read passages like proverbs 8 um, we find it talking about wisdom uh, being there involved in creation and actually see we see this a bit more fleshed out in the apocrypha so some of the books that aren't in our bible the jewish poetic tradition took this idea of a figure of wisdom uh, being involved in creation The thing is, in Jewish thought, that was just a literary device. It was a poetic idea. But here in Hebrews, and actually in places like John 1, where it says the word was with God, the word was God, and through the word all things were made, these ideas of God speaking creation into being, and there being some enigmatic figure called wisdom who is involved in wisdom, get brought together to say that Jesus is actually the word. He is wisdom. Through him, everything was created. And Hebrews doesn't elaborate on that, except to say that Jesus is not simply a king who gets to inherit things. He created everything. And so actually, as the creator of all things, of course, he is worthy to inherit everything. He is the heir. He is the creator. He is the radiance and representation The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Which is a slightly weird thing to say. Like, if I think of glory, if I had to describe glory to you, probably one of the words that would come to mind would be radiance. (laughs) So Jesus is the radiance of radiance. That's like saying he's the light part of the sunlight. It kind of, it sort of doesn't make a lot of sense to our logical mind. I mean, if I asked you to look at this light bulb and, and, or the sun and say, okay, I want you to pick out the lightness from the light, <laughs> like you go, yeah, I can't. They're indistinguishable. And that's sort of the point, really. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. There's a sense in which he is indistinguishable from God. And he doesn't say that he is the reflection of God's glory, you know, like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Rather, he is the radiance. He actually brings forth something of God's glory. You look at Jesus, you see something of the Father. And yet he's also the exact representation of the Father. And that word um, in Greek is a word that is often used of stamping coins. Um, And coins were really important in the ancient world. I mean, obviously they're important now as well. Um, But essentially they were like the first retweeted selfie of the day. If you, the king, wanted to get your power and your face, your image known throughout the world, you would do it through coins. You'd have your face on a coin so people would carry your image in a pocket. They would regularly, if they wanted to do anything or own anything they would have to barter with your image. So having a coin as the exact representation, obviously it wasn't the exact representation because the king didn't look like a bit of metal, but it was like a picture of the one who has authority. And so when this word is used of Jesus, it's saying something like that. It's like the, the way of getting God's image out there. 
But actually, in the sense, the, the coin is only a representation, it is a copy, it is somehow distinct from the original, it's a copy of the original. And so, in the same sort of way that talking about the radiance of God's glory means that the Son and the Father are somehow indistinguishable, actually, the author of Hebrews also wants to say, but there is a difference between them as well. And he doesn't elaborate on this, he just kind of opens up this can of worms that is the Trinity, and then just moves on, <laughs> as I'm about to. Um, but, but actually, there is something mysterious about Jesus. This is a, what's known as a high Christology. They had a very high view of Jesus. He wasn't just an earthly human being. He was somehow, while different from God, also indistinguishable from God. Like I say, that does open up tons of questions about the Trinity, and we won't have time to look at them now, but little headline, if today goes well and we get to do this again, I'm hoping we'll get to do a whole day on the Trinity, so um, let's shelve that for a moment. Um, Jesus is the heir, he is the creator, he is the exact representation and the radiance of God's glory. Fourthly, he is the sustainer, he sustains everything by his powerful word. Jesus has an ongoing involvement in creation. And actually the word uh, Pharaoh, it, it suggests not sustaining something in the sense of like having just this heavy weight that you just prop up. Um, there's the Greek myth of Atlas who had to just hold the dead weight of the world on his shoulders. And that's not what's going on here. Actually, this particular word, it means more to carry the weight, to carry something to a particular destination. And so you get the idea of Jesus just sustaining everything, carrying it towards the purpose for which God has intended um, it. And then finally, he is seated. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And we'll come back to this. This seems to be an allusion to Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted psalm, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And, and it's really important for Hebrews. It comes up again and again and again. We'll see it lots of times. But essentially it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And in the Old Testament, the idea of sitting at the right hand involved um, sort of overtones of honour and favour. It was the place that the most honoured person got to sit, whether in a throne room or at a dinner table. If you got to sit on the right, you were more honoured. <laughs> I'm realising I'm gesturing to this side of the room, um, which actually is accurate. So uh, you <laughs> no. it's a joke. You can switch sides anytime you like. Um, the, if you, the most honoured, the most favoured people, the people in victory would sit on the right. So if you were coming to sit with the, the king in a victory parade, the one who had won the victory would sit on the right hand side. It's the place of power. And we will see later, you only get to sit down when your job has done, but we'll come back to that in chapter 10. So just very quickly, in four verses, the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, has said some dazzling things about Jesus. He is the heir, not just of the nations, but all things. Actually, he created all things, so of course he gets to inherit them. He is the radiance and representation of God. He is the sustainer of everything, carrying it towards its goal. And he sat down as well. He has sat down at the place of power. His job is done. His job is complete. That is a lot to cover in four verses. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm aware I've just glossed over some things very quickly, but actually that's exactly what the author's done. Are you with me? So Jesus is the better, the ultimate communication. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God is about, look at Jesus. That's the first four verses. <laughs> it won't all be at this pace. Don't worry. <laughs> Verse five. <laughs> 
Actually, verse 4. No, we haven't done with verse 4 yet. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So now the author moves on saying he's not just the ultimate communication. Actually, he draws a comparison between Jesus and the angels. Now, in the Old Testament, angels essentially had two roles. Well, arguably three. But they were communicators. They were messengers. Uh, They communicated God's message to mankind, firstly. Secondly, they were thought of as being the mediators of the law. So if you look, um, for example, in... Um, Acts 7 or Galatians 3, it suggests that angels mediate, they communicate the law. And a third thing is that they worship God, which is obviously very important. Um, But why do you think those two aspects of angelic ministry, communicating and mediating the law, are so important to the book of Hebrews? Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So, so he's writing to um, to Jewish Christians who have a background in the Old Testament and particularly in the law. Yeah. So they've received communication from God um, through the angels. Yeah. So why do you think at this point? I mean, we're about to see that he says Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, why do you think Jesus might, or the author of Hebrews might want to bring the angels in here and say Jesus is better than the angels? It's just a development at that point, really. Yeah. Is it just that people say that Jesus is God's ultimate communication, like the scripture is ultimate purpose for mankind, rather than this sort of yeah. dropping on things of, of information about the law? Yeah. Yes. So it's both, it's both elements. So that the Jesus is the greatest communication, um, and we've seen that already in verses 1 to 4. But actually, the angels communicated something very specific. They communicated God's means of salvation through the law. And the author of Hebrews is wanting to tell these people who are tempted to go back to the law, back to the angel system, as it were, actually, there's something better than that. Jesus is better than the angels, and so his message is better than the message the angels communicated. And so what the author does is he gives three pairs of verses to show Jesus' supremacy, and then he returns back to Psalm 110. Again, we'll go through this quite quickly because it's important, but I want to really get onto the Moses stuff in just a minute. First of all, he shows two verses that show that Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. And again, he's quoting from Psalm 2, which I argued he already alluded to earlier. And in the Old Testament, angels are regularly referred to as being sons of God. But no individual angel was ever referred to as being the son of God. And so Hebrews wants to make a point here that even if you think of Jesus as roughly sort of similar to the angels, a communicator from God, actually he gets called something that no angel ever got called. He is called the son of God. He has a unique relationship to God. And then he quotes a second passage which is from 2 Samuel 7.14. And this is a really important passage for understanding well, everything, <laughs> really. Um, it's the promise that was given to David that through his offspring would come a Messiah who would establish a kingdom that would never end. And in that passage, God promises, I will be his father and he will be my son. And it's actually from this phrase that we get the idea of the son of God. Now, if you have been to any of these sessions before, I probably 
told you this and we looked at it when we looked at the Gospels. Actually, when we think of the idea of Son of God, what often comes to mind for us is the Trinity. Because we think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so Son of God must mean divine figure, second person of the Trinity. Actually, technically, the term Son of God doesn't mean divine. Actually, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's more of a divine claim than calling himself the Son of God, but that's not for today. Um, The Son of God refers back to this passage in 2 Samuel 7, where uh, we are told that from David's line, from his literal bloodline, would come a king in his order who would have a unique relationship with God, such that God would be to him like a father, he would be to God like a son. So son of God means the, the king in the line of David. It means the Messiah. And that is a claim that no angel ever got to make of himself. That's something that God never said to any angel. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. Second pair of verses. He shows that Jesus has a superior ministry to the angels. Um, <laughs> now, heads up, this verse has had me banging my head on my desk. Um, Aisha can probably attest to that. I've nearly broke my desk because I don't understand this verse. Um, again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, actually, to be clear, it's, it's really not clear what verse he's quoting here. Um, it's possibly a verse from Deuteronomy. It's possibly Psalm 97. Um, it's sort of resembles Deuteronomy in the Greek but not so much in the Hebrew um, and it looks like he might actually have taken Deuteronomy and Psalm 97 and put them together in a way that's just infuriatingly confusing uh, so it's, it's really hard, if you go back and look at either of those passages you'll probably go, I don't entirely know what he's done here uh, we are on verse uh, 6, let all God's angels worship him which is either a quote from Psalm 97, verse 7, or Deuteronomy 32, 43 in the Greek. <laughs> um, we don't really know. But what we do know is that he is introducing this idea to say, essentially, one of the main things that angels are meant to do is to worship God. And actually, if he is quoting Psalm 97, uh, that comes in the context of talking about um, idolatry and the idea that we shouldn't worship false images. And so if he's quoting Psalm 97, basically what he's saying is this. um, Angels are designed to worship God, and no one should worship worship a false image. And so if Jesus is being worshipped by the angels somehow, then that means that he is not a false image. He is the right image of God. If he really is the representation of God, the exact representation of the Father, he is worthy of the worship of the angels. And then he says this, verse 7, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. Now, depending on what translations of the Bible you're looking at now, and I know Aisha has a Bible that literally contains four different translations next to each other because she's showing off, but um, you might have slightly different phrases there. So some of them say um, basically that uh, he makes the winds his messengers, or some of them say that he makes his messengers the wind, um, which sounds a little bit confusing. Actually, the word for messenger can mean angel. And so essentially what he's saying is this, the angels are like the wind. They are powerful, but they're transitory. They're here temporarily. Uh, They have a a, a message to bring, but they're they're sort of here and they're gone. Whereas Jesus is somehow superior to them. And we'll get on to that next when he then quotes Psalm 45. And we're looking at Hebrews 1 verse 8. 
He shows that Jesus has an eternal, unchanging nature, unlike the winds, unlike the angels. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, not like the winds, not here and then gone, forever and ever. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, okay, this sounds great. Your throne, O God. And then it says, God, your God, has set you, but it's already addressing God. Like, what is going on? there does that confuse anybody does it confuse anybody because of the way i expressed it or does it confuse anybody like your throne O god will last forever and ever seems to be addressing god here and then it says therefore god your god as in the god of god (laughs) has set you above your companions like this is slightly baffling what is going on here Well, the psalm originally was probably addressed to King David. It was about him. And it was rare to call a king God. But occasionally in the Bible, it does that. Actually, it did it a lot in other ancient literature. Occasionally in the Bible, a king would be um, addressed as God himself. Now, when people did that, they didn't think that he actually was God. Rather, they're saying it, um, recognising that this king is a representative of God. God. So let me give you one example. In Exodus 7 verse 1, um, Moses is told, see, I made you like God to Pharaoh. There is something about his sort of representative role that means he can be addressed as if he is God himself without meaning that anyone actually thought he was divine. Rather, he is a representative of God. And so in Psalm 45, originally this is addressed to David, and it's saying, your throne, O God, I don't really think you're God, but you represent God in this scenario, your throne, O David, God, is, will last forever, etc., etc., etc. And it sort of was true about him, but imagine if someone else were to come who literally was God, that psalm, which was sort of true about David, would become literally true of that person. And this is something that we find regularly in the book of Hebrews. What is often a literary device in the minds of the Old Testament writers becomes literally true in Jesus. I got myself confused between literary and literary. No, that's what I mean. What was literary in the Old Testament is literal in the New Testament through Jesus. We find that with Melchizedek. We find that through the word and wisdom that creates everything. We find it here. Because what was sort of vaguely sort of true, but sort of not about David, becomes fully true in Jesus. He embodies this verse in a way that David never could. He has an eternal, unchanging nature. And then Psalm 102. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of your earth, of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end and Hebrews says this verse is literally true of Jesus because as we've seen he is the one through whom all things were created and if he is the creator then this passage is true of him he laid the foundations of the earth the heavens are the work of his hands everything else will perish but Jesus will remain everything else will wear out like a garment he'll roll them up like a robe but he will remain the same his years will never end 
And so again, what Hebrews has done is said, Jesus is a great communication. More than that, he is better than the angels. He fulfills the Old Testament in a way that no human or angel was ever able to do. And the point of it seems to be that he wants to make the readers know, you need to listen to this Jesus. You need to take him incredibly seriously. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 3. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Essentially saying this, look, you guys have such reverence for the Old Testament, such reverence for that law that came through angels. And if you think that's binding, and yet someone who's come who is greater than the angels, how much more binding is his life, his teaching, his communication? And so think about the situation that the readers found themselves in. They've come from Judaism, they've converted to Christianity, and now they're thinking, I'm wondering about going back to that this angel-mediated thing. And Hebrews is saying, do not do it. Because if you do, you will be going back to something that is transitory, that is unfulfilling. You need to take seriously the person and communication of Jesus. And so in just a few small verses, I think he set out a huge challenge for the readers. Are you with me still? Great. I'm aware this is very fast. Uh, thank you for keeping with me. And I will slow down at various points. Um, the prayer will be answered. <laughs> um, but the, I think actually the speed at which we're going through this sort of represents something of what Hebrews is trying to do. It's like, bam, 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 bam. It's better than that, better than that, better than that. And you kind of just, it's dizzying. And it's meant to be that way because he is trying to show you just how incredible Jesus is and how incomparable he is when compared to anything else at all. Any questions on that? Otherwise, we'll move on to the difficult bit. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I didn't actually mean to skip that. I wasn't skipping that because I thought it was difficult. Uh, but that's really important. Yeah. So the, verb, the word for firstborn in verse six. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says. Um, now, so there are all sorts, there are a couple of places in the New Testament where Jesus is described as the firstborn, and some people uh, would look at that and say, well, there you go, Jesus was born. You know, he was not around since the very beginning. Um, he was a created being, and that has been the source of many heresies that have come throughout um, church history. Actually, that is not what is meant by the word firstborn, and we know that for a number of reasons. Firstly, it seems to be that, well, we're told that Jesus created everything. And so if he created everything, if everything was created through him, he can't be involved in that created order as well. He cannot have been a created thing. And we can see that through various other passages like John 1, for example. So the word firstborn, you've got to look at how it was used in the Old Testament. And the, fir the word firstborn often refers to um, preeminence, supremacy, and inheritance rights. So if you were the firstborn child, you would be entitled to all the inheritance of your family's estate, which is something I regularly tell my younger siblings, and they don't like that very much. Um, but to be the firstborn means that you are somehow supreme. You have quality. You have inheritance rights. And I think that is what he's trying to draw out of the word firstborn, rather than saying he literally was born. He's saying that he is the most supreme um, being that there is. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't think it's going to be like, because it feels like they could have truly used 
Yeah, definitely. And, and I think um, we've got to remember that um, when we think, I really wish you'd use a different word there, um, that's probably because we read a word in a different way. We load it with particular. So we, we load it towards the born bit, <laughs> whereas actually in the Old Testament understanding of words, they would have emphasized the first, I think, the, the kind of the supremacy, the inheritance bit of it. Um, so in the way that the first, way phrase firstborn is used in the Old Testament and would have been really familiar to the readers, I think they would have understood it far more as being, this is about supremacy, this is the... Uh, the I mean, the, the word firstborn... Oh, I don't have a Greek Bible on me. I'm pretty sure here it's monogenes, which is what it often is in other places, mono meaning, meaning one, and genes being sort of, you know, from which we get genus, kind. And so it sort of means one of a kind is sort of got that idea tied up in it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the Greek word that's used here. It certainly is in other places like John 1. I can check that during a break. But it's, it's got that one of a kind sort of he is the sun par excellence sort of idea to it. Yeah. Observation of commentaries mm. on how the comparison that's made in the first chapter it takes me to the writing of Galatians where he talks about that you know, one thing that is going to be the next to Yeah. And understanding that law is a schoolmaster. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Which is exactly what we get to next and in the third session as well. So we'll, um, that's a, a very true and helpful. Uh, well, actually, let's go straight to that now. So turn over the page because um, we're going to look now at what he says about Moses and Joshua. And. Um, and he wants to say that Jesus is better than Moses and better than Joshua. Uh, and actually, in the book of Hebrews, he then goes and he talks about Abraham later on. But chronologically, like, Abraham came first. So it's a bit weird that he jumps straight to Moses. Why do you think Moses is such an important figure for him to deal with at this point in the argument? Okay, and why particularly was there a focus on Moses? What did Moses do that Abraham didn't? <laughs> wow, fighting very yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah. Yes, definitely. It's, to, it's because Moses was the mediator of the law. Now, what's interesting is this: um, you might expect him to go like to slate Moses and to say what Moses did was bad or rubbish or pointless or whatever. That's exactly what he doesn't do. He starts by affirming Moses and talking about how good Moses is. And I think that's important because probably in the uh, crowd of people who are receiving this letter, as today actually, people would have had very different ideas about the law, about what its purpose was. And some people would have been thinking, the law is great, the law is good, we should go back to the law. And other people have probably thought, actually the law is bad and evil and we should just ignore it and write it off. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to say, actually, neither of those is appropriate. The law is good. Moses was good. However, it was incomplete, and Jesus is better. And I think that's important. And just to sort of shelve this, um, maybe we can talk about it later, but I, I often think in the way that I hear Christians talking about the law, we can fall into those uh, different unhelpful categories as well. Some people will be like, oh, yes, I want to get back to the Jewish practices and do all these things perhaps unthinkingly, wondering, well, are they even still relevant today? Should we be expecting to do the same sorts of things that they did in the Old Testament times? 
there are questions, maybe we can come back to that. But some people will just talk about law and grace as if grace is great and law was bad. We never had grace. We never had grace before. Actually, when Jesus says in John 1, or he says of Jesus in John 1, that he brought grace upon grace, probably what he's saying is the law was grace. It was God's means of grace. But the grace that Jesus brings is grace upon grace. It's better grace. And so the author of Hebrews wants to say, don't write off Moses as evil or wrong or misguided. Don't write off the law as wrong or or misguided. It's more nuanced than that. The law is good, but Jesus is better. And so he starts out by affirming Moses. And in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, I'm on the wrong verse 5. He says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. And here he is quoting Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. He's saying that Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. But, verse 6, Jesus is better. Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And he's drawing a comparison between the servant and the son. And he's saying, Moses is great. Moses did exactly what he was meant to do. He was a faithful servant. However, the son is worth more than the servant. And Jesus is the son over the house. As the one that created everything, the one that built the house, uh, he is deserving of more honor than Moses. And actually, that numbers quote in context uh, comes during a period where people were criticizing God and criticizing Moses' leadership. So if you keep one finger in Hebrews and flip back to Numbers uh, chapter 14. Would someone read for us Numbers 14, verses 2 to 4, and then 26 to 32? And then 26 to 32. ending. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, so here we got this context um, that he's sort of alluding to of the people grumbling in the desert. So they've just come out of Egypt, they've experienced the exodus, the freedom from Egypt, and then they're in the desert, and what are they thinking? They're thinking, I'd really like to go back to Egypt. And so they contemplate going back into slavery. And so as a result, God says, because of your uh, hard-heartedness, because of your grumbling and your lack of faith, your lack of belief, actually none of you are going to get to enter my rest. Now, why do you think that might be a relevant allusion or, I guess, almost parable uh, for the readers of Hebrews? 
Okay. So it's almost like a parable of their particular situation. He's saying, right now, you're kind of like these guys. Like these guys that you read their story and you think, you idiots, why are you trying to go back? You're doing exactly the same right now. So you've experienced this freedom of like almost like coming out of Egypt. And now you're thinking, I'd rather go back to this system that enslaved me. And as a result, as God said to these people, you will not enter my rest. Might you be in danger of missing out on the rest of God? I think that's kind of what Hebrews is wanting to hint here. Kind of, yes. Yes. My mind's going in a million different directions right now. So, um, yes. Um, so, two comments on that. One, it depends what do we mean by rest. And so that's what we're going to try and figure out now. And then, two, what does it mean to have seen this and go back? And are these people Christians? Are they not? And that's where the warning passages come in. So, um, you're right. Those are exactly <laughs> the two questions to identify. Um, so, let's try and figure them out. So, what is actually going on with the rest theme. And this, I think, is where Joshua comes in. So uh, Hebrews then introduces the idea of Joshua. And if you know the story, um, so Joshua, we're told in Numbers 14, he was one of two people who were going to get into the land. And if you know the story, Joshua then took the people into the promised land. Uh, but of course, many of well, all of the people who had come out of Egypt died before they got there. They were the only two that made it through to the promised land. And actually, in Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 3 and 12 and 25, the land is often referred to as being a place of rest. So when you get to the land you will have rest and so people were thinking when we get to the land the land that was promised to us that is rest that's what God's got planned for us and sure enough when you get to Joshua uh, Joshua 21 and 23 uh, and various other places it says that when they got to the land Joshua gave the people rest so you might think well okay Moses promised the rest but couldn't get them there Joshua is better than Moses because he got the people to rest but then Hebrews throws in this slightly odd curveball he says this if Joshua had given them rest and this is chapter 4 verse 8 sorry I just put verse 8 on there which is not very helpful because it doesn't tell you what chapter Uh, 4 verse 8 he says if Joshua had given them rest i.e. if getting into the land was all that was meant by rest then God would not have spoken later about another day And what he's saying is this, in the Psalms, it talks about rest as if it is still something that is to come. But the Psalms were largely written when the people were in the land enjoying the rest, in sort of quotation marks. So if the Psalms were talking about something other than the land, what on earth is rest? And here he has in mind Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was written after Moses, after Joshua, the people were already in the land, And it says this. We're looking at verse 7 here. 95 verses 7 to 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And actually, he's quoted Psalm 95 already earlier uh, in chapter 3, um, talking about this time, referring back, and essentially saying, these people in the wilderness, they hardened their hearts, they didn't make it into rest. Don't you make the same mistake. If you hear God's voice today, don't you harden your hearts. And it seems to be, according to the author of Hebrews, that the psalmist is speaking to the people who are in the land and saying, rest is still available, rest is still open, don't harden your hearts because you may miss out on this rest. Which means that if the people were already living in Canaan, which they thought was the place of rest, and yet rest was still available, then rest cannot simply be a geographical thing. It cannot just mean living in the land. It must be something bigger. So what on earth is it? And so we get to chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Would someone read those verses out for me? Chapter 4, 3 to 5. This is an easy one. There are no difficult names in this one, so you might want to volunteer. (laughs) Hebrews 4, verses 3 to 5. So, this is slightly complex, but let me try and explain it as clearly as possible. Um, 4 verse 1, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, now we who have believed enter that rest. But of course, none of us, none of the readers there, none of us here live in the land of rest. None of us live in the promised land. And so what does it mean to have entered his rest? Actually, it says we have we have now we who have believed enter that rest sort of now and ongoing we enter that rest just as god has said so what is this rest well actually he goes he looks back to genesis chapter 2 and actually in the quote from uh, the psalm it says they shall never enter my rest and i think that word my is really important because it might suggest that actually it's talking about a rest that god himself owns maybe a rest that God himself experiences. And so you can imagine the author of Hebrews thinking, what is this rest? What is the rest that God has? Is there anywhere in the Bible that talks about that? Oh yes, there is. Genesis chapter 2. And so he goes back to the very beginning and he shows that God has enjoyed rest since day one. Well, day seven, but (laughs) since the very beginning. When God's creation work was complete, God began to rest. And it seems that God is now resting and the promise to enter rest is not just to get to a particular land. Rather, we get to enter his rest. We get to enter the rest that God himself is enjoying. So the rest we get to enter is not located in a land. It's not just about future circumstances, but it's the, it's the rest that the very person of God has enjoyed since day seven of creation. God began to rest on day seven. And so that means that all the practices associated with Sabbath, taking the seventh day off, getting into the land itself, celebrating the getting into the land, taking various different years and and days off, all of the temporary celebrations of Sabbath were like little tastes of something that God himself has enjoyed and is open to everyone. 
All of those things were pointing to the fact that we can experience the very rest that God himself has. And so in 3 verse 1, 3 verse 14, and various places, it talks about us sharing in Christ, sharing in God, sharing in his rest. That is, we get to enjoy something that God himself is enjoying. It's not to do with practices, it's not to do with the law, it's not to do with a location in a particular land, it's all to do with relationship with this resting God. Does that make any sense? It's kind of hard to get your heads round. Um, be you with me. Is it different from salvation? Is that, are you asking? Yeah. yeah. What do we think? Yes. Yes? Yes, because salvation is, salvation gets you to the destination. Sure. And rest is not the destination. Rest is a state of being, as God is a state of being, his state of being. Yes. So salvation is a one-time thing, but rest is a continual Yes. Oh, <laughs> a light bulb moment there. Um, <laughs> yes and yet, I think, I think it definitely is tied to salvation. Um, but I think with, as with many things in the Bible and the New Testament in particular, there's a now and a not yet thing. And I think actually we are conditioned to think um, of about destinations, endings, places. We think too geographically um, compared to the way the New Testament thinks, but particularly the New Testament. Arguably, the Old Testament thought very geographically. It was all about getting to this particular land. And I think in some weird ways, we transferred that over. We now think about heaven, which is a place somewhere else. Actually, heaven is the place where God dwells, and it's not even our final resting place because heaven and earth come back together and, and we experience the renewal of all things. Uh, but actually, I think the rest is... It is a state of being, but it's something we get to experience partly now and then partly in full in eternity. And I think that's where Hebrews is going to take us um, as we go through, that uh, there is a sort of melding together of heaven and earth. And we're going to see when we get on to chapter 8 and 9 and a little bit of 10, that actually there's an interplay of heaven and earth um, there and Jesus is now in heaven and the benefits of heaven affect us and all sorts of things. Uh, I think rest is talking about relationship with God that means that right now we get to enjoy many of his blessings but we will get to enjoy them far more fully in eternity. Uh, we enter into his state of being and that state of being permeates us as it permeates everything such that all of creation will eventually experience rest. So we get to get a taste of it now and we get it in full. Um, Yeah. They still have all those values that Yes. Against everybody. Yes. So they were never truly as we can see the Yes. Because there was always that. Yes. And promise of the next battle to come. Yes. And so that's actually a, a really important point. Uh, so I don't know if you heard of that, but. Um, uh, what Shannon was saying was that it, the, though Joshua took them into a land of rest, and it says in Joshua, he gave them rest. Like, that, that's legit. That's what happened. Um, actually, there were still all sorts of battles. Why? I think it's because that rest was not full. It was not complete. It was not it was actually designed to point to something else. And so I would say that all the kind of rest-associated practices, whether they are 
taking the seventh day off, um, allowing the land to rest on the seventh year, um, the seven times seventh year, doing year of jubilee, all these sorts of things, uh, entering the land itself, were pointing towards a greater rest that is to come. And the fact that Joshua took the people into the land and they still experienced all sorts of troubles shows that that probably wasn't the fullness of rest. And actually, now translating that to our situation, we get to experience something of rest, but these people were having incredible persecution. They were facing persecution, they were facing temptation, and we'll see a little bit later, all sorts of temptations and struggles. And so their experience now, whilst they're getting a glimpse of rest, it's still they're not experiencing it in full. And so that's why we need to look to, as 2.5 puts it, the world to come. So rest, we get to experience a bit of it now, we'll get to experience it fully in a way that Joshua and Moses never could do. Yeah. Yes. It was it was finished. Yes. And now Jesus yes, it is not complete. Yeah. And we're still waiting. Yeah. But Jesus has done. Yes. I wonder if the I don't know, to me it's yeah. because of that rest. And that rest comes in the fullness of salvation. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So I guess um I would say Jen Bless you. <laughs> Uh, Genesis 2, uh, God has experienced rest since day 7. We've not had access to that. Moses couldn't give us access to that through the law. Joshua couldn't give us access to that through getting into the land. Um, None of the practices could give us full access to that. Jesus has come and he gives us access to that. Uh, And Jesus is now actually enjoying that rest because he has died, he has risen again, he's ascended, he is in heaven with the Father, enjoying that rest. Um, And if you now take these different options, these different routes, like kind of Moses' route, the Joshua route, the Jesus route, only one of them is able to get us to, to rest. And so these other ones, they pointed there, but they could never get us there. Jesus can get us there. And so as we are united with Christ, there is a ex- sense in which we experience it now, but it's fully open in a way that it wasn't previously available. And we get to experience a bit of it now, but we will get to experience it fully, as he is currently experiencing it by being in heaven. Does that explain it a little bit? Or does it make it more confusing? <laughs> Yes. 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 And both that it has been done and that it will be done. Yeah. And I think actually, if you take Jesus out of the equation, you really couldn't have any sense of rest through Moses or Joshua. And part of the reason that we'll get to this, part of the reason the law and the covenant were ineffective was they had to be done again and again and again and again again because they can never deliver on what they were designed to do Uh, but yet we know through Jesus and I'm skipping ahead and ruining the end but um, through Jesus he has I'm having to ruin the end of of the I'm hoping you kind of know the end anyway (laughs) otherwise we'll have an altar call in a moment and um, uh, so later he's going to argue that all these old things were ineffective, but Jesus has been effective in a way that nothing else ever was. And so we can have confidence both that Jesus has done these things and also he will sustain us to the end. Um, I'm going to skip way ahead. Let's stop. <laughs> um, do we have any further questions before we leave Moses and Joshua behind?
Yeah. Great. Okay, good point. So, um, and partly we'll pick this up in the next section, but you're right, I put to verse 11, so let me finish to verse 11. Um, so, God's rest is still available. It is open for us to get. Um, and Hebrews wants to warn, actually, you, you may miss out on it. Okay? So, try to get into that rest. And now, what it doesn't say is you can uh, make a way of getting that rest. You can create the rest. Rather, the rest is there, the rest is available you have to enter into it. And he's wanting to now transition into some bits that are going to be slightly challenging, where he wants to challenge the Hebrews, like, how do you think you're going to get into this rest? Because it seems to be that you thought the rest was coming through Jesus, but now you're thinking, maybe I can get rest back through the law, maybe I'm going to go back there. And he wants to say, actually, there's only one way to get rest, and it's through Jesus. So he's not asking them to earn anything, um, in the sense that their works can earn anything, but he's saying, you've got to be you know, uh, on the right train, as it were. You've got to be like committing yourself to the one who genuinely can get you into rest. And he's wanting to warn people so that they don't fall. And probably that word "fall" is uh, euphemistic and slightly nicer way of putting it than in Numbers 14, where it talks about their corpses dropping in the desert. I think that's probably what he's saying. He's like, I don't want the equivalent of that to happen to you. Make sure that doesn't happen to you. Um, and how do we make sure? Uh, it doesn't happen to us well. We're going to see that in the very next section. So, Okay, that's been really tough. I know I've taken you on a really fast journey through a lot of texts. So let me just summarize these very quickly. Essentially, across the first four chapters, the author of Hebrews has talked to his readers about the supremacy of Christ, who is the ultimate communication. He is better than the angels who previously communicated and who gave us the law. He is better than Moses and Joshua, who promised rest but could never deliver on it. And it is through sharing in Christ that we get to share in the very rest that God himself experiences. And so he leaves us with this kind of provocative question. So what about you? You know, are you sharing in that rest now? Or are you somewhat like the people in the wilderness generation? Have you tasted of something glorious, but you're actually thinking of going back to Egypt? If so, you must be careful. You may miss out on rest. And that's kind of where he leaves us with this sort of question that the rest of the book is going to unpack. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.